Uh, you may be seated. Uh, it's my honor and my privilege to uh, be closing out the summer sermon series. Uh, this is also a very important Sunday in the liturgical calendar. Uh, it's the last Sunday before Alston Christmas, which makes this the fifth Sunday in Alston Advent. Oh, God. Wow, you're a tough crowd today. Wow! All right, well, go home, Google Alston Christmas. If you don't know what it is, you'll get the joke later. But this morning, I have two scripture passages I want us to consider. So the first uh, is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, starting in verse 3. Uh, and while you're turning there, I want to give you some historical context. So for around 100 years before Jeremiah started his ministry, the kingdom of Judah was the only nation for hundreds of miles around that was able to stand up to the power of the Babylonian Empire. Surrounded on all sides by a much more powerful energy, for a hundred years, God sustained them. He was faithful. I said he was faithful. And so along comes Jeremiah the prophet, and his message to God's people is that the Babylonians are going to win. That they are going to conquer Judah, Jerusalem will fall, many will be killed, and of those who survive, many will get sent into exile and slavery in Babylon. So you can imagine the book of Jeremiah is not the most cheerful book. And in that context comes our first passage for today, Jeremiah chapter 10, starting in verse 3. For the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. And then skipping down to verse 11. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and under the heavens. So here, Jeremiah gives vivid imagery of a craftsman making an idol, and he draws a contrast between the idols that people are worshiping and the true God. He compares the idols to scarecrows in a cucumber field that would fall over if people didn't prop them up. Whereas the true God is living and eternal and the earth trembles at his wrath. And the passage closes with a central message from Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Jeremiah was right, by the way. Ain't nobody worshiping Chamosh anymore. You know, on my way to church, I didn't see any altars to Baal or Asherah or Moloch or Ashtaroth or Dagon. Those idols have perished from the earth. But God, the true God, the living God, the eternal king is still here. And that was the central message of Jeremiah's ministry. Disaster is coming on us, so weep and mourn, but do not fear... Because the true God is still with us. And now fast forward 600 years for our second scripture passage. The Gospel of John, chapter 17, starting in verse 1. 
In the intervening centuries, the Jewish people went into exile, as prophesied by Jeremiah, returned from exile after 70 years, rebuilt the temple, reclaimed their kingdom, and then lost it again. So that by the time of Jesus' birth, Israel was under rule of the Roman Empire rather than the Babylonian Empire. And into this, Jesus comes preaching the coming of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And he ministers to his disciples, and he walks with the poor and the outcast and the broken. Just as we have walked with Jesus throughout the sermon series this summer. And then on his last night, hours before he would be betrayed, arrested, and killed, Jesus shares this message with his disciples. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then skipping down to verse 36, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So here Jesus closes his earthly ministry by reminding his disciples that eternal life consists in knowing the one true God. So 600 years earlier, as Israel was about to enter into exile, Jeremiah told the people, do not fear, because the true God is still with us. And then 600 years later, along comes Jesus, and he closes out his ministry on earth by encouraging his disciples to know the one true God. Now, the word true has many uses in English. A story can be true, a friend can be true, a note can be true, a direction can be true, a measurement can be true. And so when scripture refers to God being true, it can be a little unclear what is meant. So allow me to clarify. In these cases, true is being used in the sense of actual or real. God is true because he is real. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. he's real. That God is the true God because he is the, he is the real God, because he is the only one who actually exists. The Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, reinforces this. It, it's derived from the phrase, I am. That is, the Hebrew name for God distinguishes the God who is from all the other gods who are not. Because the other gods are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They are not alive. They do not have authority over all flesh. You cannot know them or be known by them because God is the real God and they are not. And like Jesus, the one thing I want you to know this morning is that God is real. I said he is real. And both Jeremiah and Jesus show us that there are three ways that we can know that God is real. Because God has real power. He keeps real promises. And he is a real person. Real power, real promises, real person. So first things first, God has real power. 
Jeremiah refers to this when he says, when God is angry, the earth trembles, the nations cannot endure his wrath. It's what Jesus refers to when he says that God gave him authority over all flesh. Both were emphasizing that we know God is real because of his power. Indeed, time and again in Scripture, God's people encounter his majestic, awesome, real power. Amen. Amen. The God who killed the firstborn children of Egypt. The God who caused the ground to swallow up the rebellious Levites. The God who slaughtered the priests of Baal. The God who sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the kingdom of Judah. God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the apostle. Y'all are giving me any amens on this. As Bishop would say, it's quiet in this Pentecostal church. Because, because we like to remember all the times that God did, God's power did something that we liked. Setting the Israelites free, getting, giving sight to the blind, calming the storm. But the truth is that just as often God's power does things that are terrifying. For most of recorded history, God's power was something you would want to observe from a safe distance. Because when God exercises his real power, it could be real good for you or real bad. But either way, good or bad, the Bible spends pages and pages recounting God's real power. Just as an example, the Israelites' miraculous escape from Egypt is referenced over 100 times in the Old Testament alone. Scripture keeps coming back to God's real power because it is important that we remember. That we not forget his power, because if you don't understand God's power, you will turn to idolatry. And that's important, so I'm going to say it again. If you do not understand God's power, you will turn to idolatry. Because idolatry is just treating something else as if it were God. And we need God. So if we don't understand his power, we'll turn to other things to fill that need. We will make them idols. And to illustrate that point, I have a demonstration. And for those who don't know me, I have a bit of a reputation for demonstrations. So just bear with me a moment. Okay, now... Can anyone in the congregation tell me what this is? A firework. Okay, on the package in here it says fluorescent purple bombshell. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, this sermon's about to get real. Fun fact, I had to drive to New Hampshire to purchase this. Because New Hampshire has more lax consumer protection laws than the state of Massachusetts. Now, congregation, can anyone tell me what kind of power a firework has? So it is, I hear, I hear like a so fire, the light, it makes fire, flames, makes a loud noise, right? All of these are reasons I thought this would be a terrific sermon illustration, a way to send our summer sermon series out with a bang. Um, so here we go. Now, 
don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. You're all going to be fine, okay? I saw someone do this on a YouTube video once. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. It's fake. But I totally had some of you. Some of you really thought that I was going to detonate a live firework indoors, on camera, in church. You must think I am some special kind of crazy. But no, this is just a hollow tube of cardboard. It may look real. It may feel real. It may even smell real. I even had some of you convinced that it was real, but it is not real. Watch this. Because it has no real power. And it is the same with idols. Idols seem real. They are things you can touch and look at. Jeremiah talks about how craftsmen will shape the idols and adorn them with silver and gold. But just like this fake firework, idols are not real because they have no real power. As Jeremiah says, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Idols have no power of their own. They only have the power that we give them. Because as long as you thought this firework was real, it had power over you. Some of you, your, your heart rates were, were increasing while the fuse was burning down. I saw people plug their ears. I saw some people hiding behind the fuse. I saw some people hiding behind other people. No, no judgment. But because you believe the firework was real, it had power over you. And it is the same with idols. As long as you believe the idol is real, it has power over you. And that is why Jeremiah says, do not fear them. Because the idol is not real. It has no power. The only one with real power is God. Because he is the true God. He is the real God. Amen? Amen? So God has real power and idols do not have real power unless we give it to them. And one of the consistent refrains of scripture is that the merciful God will use his power to dethrone idols in your life. To show you that your idols have no real power. To set you free from bondage. To convince you that your idols are not real, not worthy of your worship. It's what God did to Judah during the time of Jeremiah. The Jewish people persisted in worshiping idols and believing that those idols had the power to help them, to save them. And so God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Judah and drag the people into exile. And it is during the exile that the Jewish people finally come to accept 
that God is not just their God, not just the most powerful God, not just the best God. No, Yahweh is the only God. And it's that God, the true God, the real God, who eventually returns them to Jerusalem almost 100 years later so they can rebuild the temple and form the nation that Jesus will call home. Sometimes God has to tear down the idols in your life before he can bless you. Because, you see, if you're still clinging to an idol when he blesses you, you will give the idol the credit and not God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Troy, this is a very entertaining message, and you're very handsome. <laughs> but, Troy, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I don't have any idols. And I can understand the confusion here because I'm guessing that most of you don't have any altars to bail in your living room. But that doesn't mean you don't have idols. It's just that idols today look different than they did 3,000 years ago. We don't make idols out of golden calves or carved statues. We make idols out of other things. The places we go to school, the people we follow on social media, the latest gadgets and technologies. All of those can be idols because an idol is simply something in your life that is not God that you treat like God anyway. Something that receives your worship, honor, and praise. Something that you rely on and invest your hope in. Because all those things, hope, faith, honor, praise, worship, they're all things that are meant for the one true God. The real God. And an idol is anything that comes between you and God. In fact, many of you have an idol in your pocket or purse Right now. I know I do. Do you want me to show you the most worshipped idol in America? All right, here it is. Money. The almighty dollar. Like all idols, money only has power that we give it. Contrary to the popular aphorism, money does not make the world go round. It's actually angular momentum that makes the world go round, not money. To paraphrase the prophet Jeremiah, money cannot speak. It must be carried because it cannot walk. Money did not make the world. God did that. Money was invented by people. And yet it's so, so tempting to turn money into an idol that we even made a little note to ourselves here on the back where it says, in God we trust. Almost as if it's a reminder not to put your trust in this, but to put your trust in the one who is the source of all blessings. See, and we really don't like to talk that much about the idolatry of money because it is uncomfortable. And so... I'm going to just confess that I often make an idol out of money. I give it power over my life. I think about how much I make and how much I have saved. Sometimes, I, and I depend on money. Sometimes I depend on money more than I depend on, more than I depend on God. 
I make decisions based on my finances rather than based on my faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. He's talking about himself. Money can be an idol. And sometimes we don't want to let go of our idols. We don't either. We don't think we have them or we don't think they're that bad. And what scripture teaches us is that in those situations, God will use his power to knock our idols off their thrones. To remind us that idols have no real power, no power to save. That idols only have the power that we give them. And boy, does it feel terrible when God does that. It is what he did to Judah during the time of Jeremiah, using destruction and exile to remind the people that their idols could not save them. And sometimes God will do the same to the idol of money. Our investments will go bankrupt. Inflation will make things more expensive. Interest rates will rise. Dishonest people will rip you off. Sometimes God will use his power to knock the idol of money off its throne. And I'm going to tell you something. I am going to burn this dollar. Okay? I'm going to burn it. I am not kidding. It's not a, tri not a joke. I am going to burn this dollar. But because I have done this demonstration before, I know that right now some of you are feeling some kind of way. Because I have done a lot of crazy demonstrations. I did one demonstration where I accidentally, accidentally, accidentally crashed a drone into that window. Okay, that $250,000 window. Okay, now there was no damage, okay, everything was fine, but after that demonstration, do you want to know what people asked me? What are you going to do next? <laughs> How are you going to top that one? But when I did a demonstration where I burned a dollar, one dollar, I got the side eye. Even afterwards, some people came up to me and said, you know, you need to be more careful about doing demonstrations like that. So just to be clear here, I can crash a drone into a $250,000 window that is a memorial to the Lord in the sanctuary, in the house of God, I can do that, and we're cool. We're good. But if I want to waste a dollar, we have a problem. You see, I can think of no better testimony to the power that money has over our hearts. And sometimes God will use the idol of use financial disasters to knock the idol of money off its throne. You see, the reality is that that, that dollar was counterfeit. Okay. I would have burned a real dollar, but it's actually not safe. They don't burn well. So it was not real money. It had no actual power except for the power that we chose to give it. 
And that's the same way. Idols are counterfeit gods. They have no real power. They promise us joy, but it is counterfeit joy. They promise us hope, but it is counterfeit hope. They promise us peace, but it is counterfeit peace. And sometimes God uses his real power to cut those counterfeit gods down so that he can show us real joy, real hope, and real peace from a real God. Amen? Amen. So that is the first point. God has real power. And for those of you who are worried about time, it was also my longest point. Um, the second way in which we know God is real is because he keeps real promises. We see this in the passage from Jeremiah. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That's a promise. We also sang about, this, about it this morning. We said, Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Indeed, throughout Scripture, we are convinced that God is real in part because he makes and keeps promises. He made a covenant, a promise to Abram that his descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand. During Jeremiah's life, God made a promise to one day rescue his people by sending an anointed one, a Messiah. A promise that was fulfilled by Jesus. Just before the passage we read from John, Jesus had made a new covenant, a new promise that was sealed with his blood. A covenant we call communion. Throughout history, God has shown he is real because he makes and keeps real promises. So an obvious question is, why? Why does God make promises? Why doesn't he just do whatever he's going to do right away? Well, Jesus gives, the, gives us the answer to that in the passage we just read. God makes and keeps real promises so that we can know him. As Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. Because eternal life is a promise. It's about the future. And the purpose of that promise is that we might know the only true God. Now, the most important promises do not generally come when things are going well. God's promise to make Abram's offspring as numerous as the grains of sand came when Abram was 75 years old, had no children, and his wife was barren. God told the Israelites about the promised land while they were slaves in Egypt. Through Jeremiah, God shared the famous promise that we heard just last week. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. He shared that promise as they were being dragged into 70 years of exile. In the passage we just read from John, Jesus promises his disciples eternal life on the night before Jesus himself would be crucified, die, and be buried. By giving us promise, promises in the midst of hardship and struggle, God gives us the opportunity to see things from his perspective, to know him better. Let me give you an analogy for this. Okay, by show of hands, how many of you have ever flown on an airplane? Flown on an airplane. Show of hands. Okay, we got a lot of flyers here, a lot of flyers. Okay, now, by show of hands again, how many of you have ever taken off in a storm? In a storm. Taken off in turbulence, any of you? Yes, yes. Okay, that, 
That can be terrifying. Can I get a witness? You know, it's cloudy and dark, and the rain is pounding on the windows, and there's lightning, and the plane is shaking. And the pilot gets on the intercom and says, And when the pilot does that, that's when you know it's about to get real. And if you are a worst-case scenario planner like me, in the midst of that, there's part of your brain that is thinking, dude, we could legit die here. The plane could get blown out of the sky. The engines could fail. We could die. But as the plane keeps, cl keeps climbing, eventually you get above the clouds, and above the clouds, the rain stops. The sun is shining. It is beautiful up there. And eventually, as you keep climbing, the turbulence fades away, and the storm isn't over. It is still going on down there. Indeed, you will probably be back in it when you land, but the being above the clouds gives you a different perspective. Because the sun was always there. You just couldn't see it. And that is what the promises of God do, because sometimes in life we will face storms. But the promises of God remind us that the sun is still there. It has been there all the time. It is still shining. The clouds are just in the way. And when we get above those clouds, I said when we get above those clouds, because my body may be stuck down here on earth. I may be walking in the valley. There may be a storm hanging over just my head. But with the promises of God, our spirits can rise above the clouds. And for a moment, we see things from his perspective. We know him better. God's promises sustain us when his power is not yet and so we have two ways thus far that God shows us he is real. The power and the promise. The power and the promise. And if you are struggling with anxiety and worry and fear, you need to know both of those things. You need to know the power and you need to know the promise. Because you need to know that God can before you'll believe that he will. Sometimes you need to see the power before he will show you the promise. Sometimes you need to understand that he is a bad God before you will trust that he's a good God. Yes. And so if you are in the midst of anxiety and worry and fear this morning, I have good news. Because God is real. He has the power to intervene in your situation and he has a promise for you to hold on to. And if you're struggling to believe that, the antidote is to remind yourself what is real. Because the good, remind yourself of the real power of God. The good things, the healing of the sick, the giving sight to the blind, and the not so good things. Forty years of wandering in the desert, the fall of Judah. Because if he did it before, he can do it again. What did we sing? Sing. I've seen you move. 
You move the mountains, and I believe I'll see you do it again. You made a way where there was no way, and I believe I'll see you do it again. Amen, amen. Remind yourself of what he has done in the past, that he can do it again. You can also remind yourself of the ways God has moved in your own life. I constantly remind myself that God came for me when I was lost. That he helped Elisa and I have children when we were struggling to conceive. That he healed my son. And while you're waiting, remind yourself of the ways that God is moving in the lives of people around you. Because while we're waiting on God, there's part of our spirit that will say, Oh God, why would you do that for them and still do nothing for me? And that's a natural feeling. And what God wants you to do in that situation, the way you will come to know God better, is to move one step beyond that. To get above those clouds. And say, God, I don't know why you have not moved in my life yet. But if you can do that for them, then I know you can come through for me. Hallelujah. Anybody have witness? Anybody remember the power of God? And so you can remind yourself of God's power in the past, his power in your own life, his power working in the lives of people around you. And finally, you can remind yourself of the promise. What has God promised you? You can find a lot of these promises in Scripture. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, but seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. In every situation, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. When you are anxious, remind yourself of these promises. Hold on to them. Remind yourself that even the saints had to wait to see these promises fulfilled. And if there isn't a promise that you can find in Scripture that speaks to your situation, pray and ask. Ask God, Lord, what is your promise for me? Because for the 600 or so years between Jeremiah and Jesus, that is what the Jewish people did. They reminded themselves of the power and the promises of God. They recounted the stories of his power to each other. They wrote them down for future generations. It was during the exile that more people examined the scriptures and discovered the promise of a coming Messiah, a savior for God's people. And in the midst of one of the worst portions of their history, that promise gave them hope. And so if you're struggling with anxiety, worry, and fear, I encourage you to do the same. Remind yourself of the power and the promise of God. So those are the first two ways that we can know that God is real. He has real power, and he makes and keeps real promises. The last way that we know God is real is that he is a real person. 
It's implicit in the language that Jeremiah uses. He refers to God as the eternal king and the living God. That's language you would use to talk about a real person. A, a living king is, after all, a person. At other points, Jeremiah refers to God's face and his hands. He talks about God's heart, his mind, his words, his voice. For Jeremiah, God was definitely not human, but he was still a person. Jesus reinforces this by referring to God as Father. Again, a father is a real person. But of course, the most clear way that we can know God as a real person is in Jesus himself, the Jesus that we have been walking with through the sermon series this summer. Jesus was the fulfillment of the centuries-old promise of the Messiah. He was the promise of God. Because in Jesus, God came to earth as a real historical person. Jesus, who was both fully God and fully human. He even hints at as much in the passage we just read, say, stating, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Putting knowing God and knowing Jesus as two sides of the same coin. Jesus, who his disciples could touch, talk to, and follow, in Jesus, God was, in the most tangible sense, a real person. And our ability to know God isn't complete until we know him as a real person. Because his power can inspire awe, and his promises can inspire faith, but only a person can inspire love. And it's important to note that the law does not command us to have awe, nor does it command us to have faith. No, we are commanded to love. When Jesus himself was asked to summarize the law and the prophets, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love. That's it. That's the law. Because awe may convert us and faith may save us, but only love can lead us. And it's a strange thing in English that the word love can mean so many different things. Love can describe the way I feel about my wife. But it can also describe the way I feel about my car, or a pair of jeans, or a slice of pizza. Even though those are all very different feelings. In Greek, they had at least eight different words for love, and the one that's being used here, agape, could have only applied to people. You couldn't agape a car, or food, or clothes, or an idea. Agape describes unconditional love for a person. When we're called to love God with our heart, and soul, and mind, and strength, we are being called to love a real person. It's the same kind of agape love that Jesus refers to in the passage we read when he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And the amazing thing, the astonishing thing, is that here, Jesus has split things on its head. He is not talking about how we are to love God. He's talking about how God loves us. Jesus said that because he has made God known to us, the love that God had for Jesus is now in us. God loves Jesus, and because of what Jesus did, God loves us. 
And it's that love, that personal love for us that sustains us as we wait for his promises. Is there anyone out there that can give God some praise for his love? Because you see, I don't think you're really getting it here. The Apostle Paul once wrote from prison. I said he wrote this from prison. He said, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. For I am sure, I am convinced, I am confident, I am sure that neither death nor life Neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is ever going to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Amen and hallelujah. Does anyone out there know that there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God? God loves us so much, so much. We just said it's excess love. Jesus loves us so much that he came to earth just to be with us so that we could know that we're not alone. Jesus, who had the power of God to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to set captives free, Jesus who brought the promise of eternal life, Jesus, who died to pay the debt that we could not pay, and Jesus, who glorified God by being raised from the dead so that we could know that we will never be alone because he lives. Amen. And you know, maybe you are here this morning And you have never accepted Jesus as the real God. Never known his love for you. And and maybe during the sermon this morning, God has been working on your heart. And you want to believe. You want to know God the way that Jesus did. And if that is you, I want to encourage you to take the first step. Because ultimately, love is the difference between God and every idol that we serve. Because no matter what you do, no matter how much you sacrifice, no matter how much you love it, that idol will never love you. Because it can't. Because it is not real. Your idols don't love you because they are not real. But God is real. And he is right here with you. And he loves you. And accepting that love is easy. It's just saying out loud what you already know in your heart. And so I'm going to ask everyone in the congregation here just to bow your heads as just a simple way of showing reverence for the God who is here with us. And if God is speaking to you, if you've never accepted Jesus before today, I'd like you to just slip up your hand, slip up your hand so that I can pray for you. If you want to know God's love and receive the gift of eternal life, I want you to just raise your hand where I can see it. See that hand. 
Amen. Is there another? I just, no one else is watching except for me. I'm just looking. I see those hands. I see those hands. Amen. Amen. If you want to receive the love of God, is there another? I don't want to stop. I don't want to cut off the opportunity. Amen. Amen. Well, whether you raised your hand here in the sanctuary or at home, I am going to ask you to just say this simple prayer after me. A prayer confirming what you just declared by raising your hand. And so that no one feels embarrassed, I'm going to invite everyone in the congregation to pray with me. Okay? So just say this after me. Father, I believe that you are real. You sent Jesus to die for me. I believe you raised him from the dead. I believe I have eternal life. Father, I thank you that right now I know I am your child. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you that we are your children. And if you just accepted Christ, we would love to follow up with you. To help you as you begin your walk with Christ Jesus. And so if you prayed that prayer for the first time, uh, there are going to be some instructions on the screen and we invite you to reach out. We welcome you to the family of God. Amen. And now I would invite you all to stand where you are so that you may, I can bless you. I'll remind you this is the last Sunday of one service. So you can come at 10 a.m. next week. You'll just be an hour and a half early for the 1130 service. Okay. So extend your hands to receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and protect you, look after you, shield you, defend you, and take care of you. May the Lord make his face shine, grin, beam, and show good his pleasure on you. And may the Lord be gracious, kind-hearted, pleasant, and compassionate to you. May the Lord show you his favor that will promote you, appreciate you, support you, and side with you as you side with him. And finally, may the Lord give you his shalom, his peace, his rest, his harmony, his calmness, his composure, his prosperity, his success. Remove anything that causes agitation or discord with his divine purpose and destiny for your life. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Go in the peace of the Lord.